As one of America's largest financial services companies, Nationwide makes simplicity a priority so financial professionals can help their clients achieve their retirement goals. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It's packed with benefits to help unlock more value from your business purchases. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrell and Lisa Abramowitz. Daily, we bring you insight from the best and economics, finance, investment, and international relations, find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg Terminal. From Dudley and McKelvey to the era of Hatzius, Goldman Sachs research has been about acuity. On this Friday, we're going to lose the numbers, the many numbers of Jan Hatzius's work, his team's work, but we're going to go to one number, which is your Q4 number. They've marked down GDP from a sterling 1.3% to sub 1%. That gives you some of the direction of the recession call. But at the same time, Jan Hatzius calls for a shallow recession. If we get a shallow recession, you quantify what it will mean for jobs in America. How does the magnitude of recession work into the dynamics of unemployment? Yeah, let's just uh, be clear that we don't have a recession in our baseline forecast. We do have significantly below trend growth. 0.9% is only half the long-term trend pace. Mm-hmm. But our our best guess is that we'll be below trend. That rebalances the imbalance in the labor market. And that ultimately also helps bring inflation back down. That said, there's a very significant risk of recession. I think it has gone up because it's very difficult to reduce labor demand right. without you know, the, the deterioration feeding on itself and then ultimately culminating in a recession. So we're giving a one in three chance of a recession in the next 12 months, and it's close to 50-50, I think, over the next But you get 2% two of unemployment rate baked into a 2001-ish kind of recession. In 2001, it was a two percentage point increase that was the bottom end of the historical range if you look at all of the recessions. Mm-hmm. In post-war history, the top end of the range is five and a half percentage points. I think if we do have a recession, it's likely that it would be on the shallower end for two reasons. One, private sector balance sheets are in better shape than at the end of previous business cycles. And two, I think while inflation is very high, I don't think it's as entrenched, certainly not as entrenched in expectations Mm -hmm. as it was in previous high inflation episodes. 70s, early 80s. Yeah, and we just got off a couple of weeks where people were ratcheting up their expectations for the terminal Fed funds rate to about 4% uh, as of at some point next year. And here we are looking at a huge rally in two-year yields. Can you translate the rally that we have seen through an economics lens in terms of what people are forecasting and whether it seems plausible in your mind? Well, our forecast is a terminal rate of three and a quarter to three and a half percent. We think we'll get there by the end of 2022, we don't have any additional rate hikes in, in 2000 and 
23, basically, because the economy is decelerating, is growing below trend, inflation is coming down. And I think at that level, the Fed would probably hold. You're right. We had priced something around 4%, you know, immediately after the FOMC meeting or right around the FOMC meeting. But I think people have looked at the fact that the economy actually is decelerating and that has led to a reversal of that. And I think fundamentally that's appropriate. But Jan, given the fact that we are seeing a deceleration, but we're not seeing a deceleration when it comes to the inputs into inflation, we're seeing rents continue to climb at a record pace. We're continuing to see some of the disruptions to oil supplies and to food supplies that are causing some of the price increases. When do you start to talk stagflation? When do you start to talk about a Fed that is forced to act despite an unemployment rate that's rising and despite weakening economic data points? Well, I think it's a little bit more mixed if I look at the inflation indicators. No question, the last CPI and the rent number there was bad. There was an increase in the long-term University of Michigan inflation expectations measure. But the supply chain measures are actually getting better. You look at the supplier delivery indices and the business surveys, those are coming down. Um, The wage numbers in 2022 have been sequentially clearly slower than the second half of last year. And I think, broadly speaking, inflation expectations, look at just the break-evens in the bond market, are still very well anchored. So I think it's a, it's a more mixed picture. And in an environment where growth comes down to a below-trend pace, I just don't think that the Fed would uh, you know, keep hiking aggressively mm. when the economy is already slowing and inflation is already coming down. So, Jan, essentially what you're saying is that when Chairman Powell was speaking on Capitol Hill yesterday, saying that our commitment to fighting inflation is unconditional, that there actually are conditions in which the Fed blinks. I think there are conditions where the Fed blinks, but it's partly because there is a feedback from economic activity into into inflation. If the economy weakens and labor demand declines and maybe the unemployment rate starts edging up, then you're also just going to become less concerned about inflation. So uh, I do think the the commitment to ultimately getting back down to 2% is unconditional, but there will be you know, factors other than the current inflation prints that will sort of drive what they do on a, on a meeting-by-meeting basis. While we're talking about the specific year, words that Jerome Powell has used, I've talked earlier in the show about the tweets Bill Ackman posted overnight talking about how the Fed clearly has a credibility problem. The bond market is misreading the Federal Reserve. And what he said is ultimately that comes down to the communication of the chairman. Do you think that Powell and others on the FOMC are, are accurately communicating to this market what it is they intend to do? No, I think they are accurately uh uh, communicating, I think, in ways that 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 are clear that that they do want to get back down to two percent uh, eventually. They're tightening policy aggressively, much more aggressively than they expected to do six months ago or twelve months ago, in part because inflation turned out to be much higher. So I think at that level, it's it's all pretty clear. On the credibility problem, I would also say, you know, look at inflation break evens. I mean, the credibility from the bond market's perspective. Uh, or from the perspective of forecasters of the 2% inflation target, right. still seem in, seems intact. Yeah, and I want to go to Peter Orzag of the London School of Economics in a small banking shop in New York. Peter Orzag loves the phrase glide path. 
and maybe that's differential equations, but let's just, it's Friday. Let's just stay with calculus. Are we completely misjudging the second and first derivative of core inflation coming in where it may come in shockingly rapidly and we underestimate that good news? I do think that core inflation is likely to come down. In fact, if you look at statistical measures of core inflation, like the trimmed mean exactly. index, In Cleveland. that Dallas, has been improving yeah. over the last few few months. It's still a little too early to tell how Agreed. much weight to Agreed. put on it. Agreed. But the, the last couple of readings have been more encouraging. And I think that does suggest that over time, core inflation is going to come down. And you know we are, we're at about 4% for core PCE, core in this case defined as ex-food and energy by the the end of the year, and then at about two and a half percent by the end of next year. So I don't think it's going to happen overnight, but I think we're headed in that direction. So when Jerome Powell says we get back to two percent inflation, that's what he's talking about. And Hatzia says Powell will get his wish in eighteen months. Not quite. We're at you know two and a half, but that's not too far away it's from two percent. Two especially, and two and a half. It's TV. Who's counting? Especially if you look at this as an average inflation target. Okay, so right. at some point there will, you know, whether there's a recession next year yeah. or not, you know, our best guess is not, but there will be a recession at some point and that will bring inflation down further. I should say with great respect, I'm busting Dr. Hatzis' chops. There is a huge difference between two and two and a half percent in the inflation game. Jan Hatzis is with Goldman Sachs. Thank you so much for coming in. Nobody ever says make it complicated. That is why Nationwide makes simplicity a priority by providing financial professionals with straightforward, client-ready resources. From clear strategies to help clients meet retirement savings and income needs to ways to cover rising health care costs and more, Nationwide simplifies planning so more time can be spent helping clients. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It's packed with benefits to help unlock more value from your business purchases. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. Ian Lingen is out of Minnesota in the Carlson School of Finance. It is absolutely definitive with a tour of duty at Yale as well and holds court at BMO Capital Markets and writes absolutely the most dense note on fixed income 
dynamics on the street. We're thrilled he could join us in studio uh, today. Ian, welcome to Bloomberg. I'm going to cut to the chase. Forget about the y-axis, moving yields. Your note right now is on the mystery of the x-axis as Bullard talks about front loaning and that. Give us the nuance to the pro, pro audience of the x-axis dynamic, the first and second derivatives of the time change we're going to see. Well, I think that this is the most important conversation in financial markets at the moment. It's really the answer to the question, how can Bullard be talking about a 350 terminal rate when the reality is that two-year yields are trading at or below 3%? It really comes down to the 24-month moving window represented by the two-year notes. And effectively what the market is saying is you might hike now, but you're going to have to start cutting much sooner than in prior cycles. Leave fixed income and go over to Jan Hatzius at Goldman Sachs Economics, where he and I talked about core CPI and the idea that we don't have a real understanding of the rate of change of how core CPI is going to come down. Do you share that uncertainty? I certainly do. I would add one nuance, Please. however, and that is all inflation is the same at this moment for the Fed. Headline inflation, core inflation, they've made no distinction. That's interesting because in the past, they would always focus on core inflation over headline because it was less volatile. But the realities of higher energy prices, higher food prices, and the fact that inflation has become the political touchstone at this point makes all inflation equal. And I think that will change, but not until the midterms. And is peak rates, it's peak yields, have we already gotten past that? Are we basically at a place where you can say definitively that that is an accurate characterization of what we've seen? Well, that is certainly our call, but I will note that I said the same thing once we got to 320. So at 350, the logic holds a lot better, but the reality is there's going to eventually be demand for 10 and 30 year paper. And we haven't seen the key investor classes of Japan or certain parts of Europe really come in and start buying treasuries yet. And when we do, that will be worth uh, 35 to 45 basis points in tens. And that gets you back below 3%, the curve more inverted, and the market even more worried about a recession. So Ian, is this supportive for risk assets if the market is going to get more uh, worried about recession and could potentially have to uh, reduce their estimates for margins and profits? So that is, again, one of the key uncertainties. I would, would normally say, yes, you have a less aggressive Fed, you have lower rates, you should have a good setup for risk assets. But this Fed is behaving much differently than we might have otherwise anticipated. So we could see a, the, poss the possibility of a recession increase, but the Fed, instead of having the traditional response, just push forward and say, yeah, three and a half, we're going to get there. We might push it into a recession, but the reality is it's worth keeping the decades of hard-won credibility as an inflation fighter for the Fed for this one cycle. Well, Bill Ackman of Pershing Square says the Fed already has a credibility problem and that the bond market is misreading the Fed. To quote one of his tweets, he said that the market is flat out ignoring Powell and the governor's commentary. Expect even more hawkish commentary until the bond market wakes up. Who's asleep, Ian, Bill Ackman or the bond market? Well, I'll tell you this much. If you look at break-evens, what you can see is that inflation expectations continue to move lower and lower, and lower, and that is a vote of confidence in the Fed's ability to control inflation and forward inflation expectations. So uh, one thing can be said, the tips market certainly isn't asleep at the moment.
Well, and Jim Bullard, as we said, have said that the tips pricing is pretty much uh, right on at the moment. So as we put all of this together, the market has confidence in the Fed's ability to fight inflation. What it has less confidence in is what the ultimate result of that inflation fighting is, how deep a recession will be when and if one arrives. Ian, what is your assessment of that and ultimately what that means for how low we could see yields going? So I think that at this point, part of the conversation that isn't uh, occurring in markets is we're just coming off of a negative real GDP print for Q1, which was negative 1.5 after revisions. Right now, GDP for the second quarter is tracking at zero. So if we have a repeat of the higher than expected inflation uh, profile in the U.S., we could actually dip below zero for real growth in the <clears throat> second quarter. And that would make a recession a very uh, near-term event. Caveat, though, that's not the same type of recession that the market is talking about. The market's worried about a real recession with higher unemployment that we actually see a, an aggregate hit to nominal demand. And that's not where we are yet. Ian Lingen, part of your world. If you're on radio and television, Ian Lingen of BMO Capital Markets joins us right now. The conversation of the week on fixed income. You and I have never seen these bond losses. And I'm fascinated and honored to ask you this question, which is get away from the nuances the bottom line is the total return index, the Bloomberg Lingen total return index is negative 12%. How does bond psychology change if people are looking out to 2024, 25, 26 to catch up from these losses? Well, I think an important aspect of bond losses in the Treasury market is to keep in mind who the major players tend to be. A the people taking the loss. <laughs> a lot of the people taking the loss are indexed or, are, or, match, or attempting to match their index, but everybody's been short. And so on paper, it's a pretty significant loss, but a good portion of the investment community has fared reasonably well. Okay, but well. what about, come on, what about mere mortals? They open up their statement from BMO Capital mm -hmm. Markets and go, they start saying profanity about Lingen. The real world out there, this is a bond mar market we've never seen. Mm -hmm. It's worse than Volcker's bond market. Mm -hmm. I think that the person at home opening their statement, what they're really going to be thinking in the back of their mind is, wow, mortgage rates are almost 6%. That might be the problem. So a little bit of pain in terms of the opportunity to invest in higher treasury yields is one thing. But as the ramifications of the Fed's tighter monetary policy continue to push through to the, the employment and the uh, housing market, I think that's where we start to get worried. Ian, how much is your peak yields uh, thesis right now hinging on this idea that the inflationary inputs are transitory, that we still have this stealth transitory narrative guiding a lot of investors and even the Federal Reserve? I think that the peak inflation or the peak rates narrative is actually based more on the hawkishness and the aggressiveness of the Fed. Regardless of how inflation plays out, what we know is that a lot of what has occurred, at least over the course of the last six or eight months, has been a function of distortions created by the pandemic, the supply side on the energy sector, and now food inflation is very material. Fast forward to uh, this time next year. The year-over-year -year inflation prints will not be as high. That doesn't mean it was necessarily transitory. That either means that the Fed was that much more hawkish or, in fact, prices moderated just based on demand. Ian, while we're fast-forwarding, fast-forward to 10 a.m. when we get those UMISH sentiment numbers, is the bond market going to latch onto more of the pure sentiment read, how, how bad it is and what that means for growth prospects, or the inflation expectations and what that means as to whether or not the Fed is actually going to have to be more hawkish for longer if that is becoming entrenched in the economy? I think that the headline 
consumer confidence figure at record low levels is extremely telling. And when we look at the correlation, it really comes down to gasoline prices and equity performance. And both of those have been going the wrong direction for the there to be any additional confidence. I think that we are going to focus on confidence over inflation expectations because the Fed has communicated that they're going to do everything it takes to keep inflation anchored. Very quickly here, do bonds have catharsis? We think about stocks going down, VIX of 40, et cetera. Does that happen with bonds? Does everybody sell at the same time? So there does tend to be key moments of capitulation in one direction or the other. And right now, as I mentioned, uh, the vast majority of the market is short treasuries. There'll be a point where people wake up and they okay. say, oh, I, don't, I don't want to miss out on these higher yields. Wonderful to see you. I have a lot of message here on Ian's research. Again, we protect the copyright of all of our guests. Find that research at BMO Capital Markets. Ian Lincoln with us. Gina Fordham with us. Future's up 30 right now. Founder and geopolitical strategist Fordham Global uh, 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 Foresight joins us uh, right now. Thrilled to have her on this morning. Tina, I want to digress to the British elections and the uproar of Mr. Dowden, the conservative Tory party leader, resigning at 5.30 in the morning, uh, London time. And I want to go out far west of London on the way out to Cornwall. And this is not the time of poll dark. This is the time of now. And North of Exeter, Tiverton, and lovely Devon. I hope I'm pronouncing everything correctly. And Boris Johnson was absolutely crushed. What is the symbolism that he was crushed in friendly Devon going back to 1935? Well, it's, it's another blow to, to this prime minister who, nevertheless, as you will have seen, Tom has vowed to, to carry on um, exactly as he has been. Um, we've had scandal after scandal. The, the chairman of the Conservative Party, as you've said, uh, resigned this morning in a, a you know, sternly worded letter. Uh, and yet Boris Johnson doesn't seem to have plans to go anywhere. And that tells you a lot about the times that we're living in. Um, there, there certainly is no, uh, no shame in politics, no, no sense of accountability. And as long as the labor leader, Keir Starmer, um, is not you know, a, a serious challenge, Johnson will probably stay where he is. Um, it, it's uh, you know, defying the laws of political gravity. By-elections in the UK uh, aren't typically, you know, very, very much participated in. Pollsters will tell you that they're of minor importance. But again, in the face of, of so many crises that this government is facing, um, how many times can Boris Johnson get on a plane and go see his friend uh, Zelensky in, in Kiev when things are looking tough at home? Tina, you point to this political gravity or lack thereof uh, that Boris Johnson has and other leaders may have as well as we face a lot of individuals who want to be heard about the pain that they are feeling in the face of inflation. And that brings us to some of the strikes and some of the protests that we're seeing erupt throughout Europe, throughout the world. What is the hot spot that you're watching and what is the consequence both politically and economically uh, that will result? Well, strikes and inflation go hand in hand and uh, coming out of, a, of the pandemic and probably heading into a recession. And with those uh, workers who are on kind of fixed contracts, not having seen a, a pay rise for a very long time, 
you know, the old summer of discontent term is being banded about a lot. Um, you guys were talking about uh, the price of, of lobster rolls. Um, you know, similarly, I can say that British Airways is threatening, I think, meaningfully here in the UK to start striking as soon as school vacations begin. Um, that's going to be very unpopular. But the question is whether it's going to, to actually force a compromise in advance. Um, in the UK, this is very acute. Uh, France also is, is known to, to have strikes, and that will recur. And, and I guess what I feel is there's a sense of, of, of helplessness about this. For, for so many public sector and other workers, wages have been stagnant through the pandemic, and you know it's just taking inflation to focus minds. Tina, we talked about lobster rolls tongue-in-cheek because this is the least of our concerns. It's basic staples. It's wheat. It's basic meat. It's all of these other uh, basic uh, groceries and gas prices that are impeding, as Tom said, the lower deciles. How do we look at possible, possible fiscal spending to offset some of the pressures that are very real, very tangible, and a big threat, particularly to the lower income individuals around the world, in Europe in particular? Well, of course, the people most acutely affected are, are the very poorest in EMEA and those who depend on, on grain supplies that are being blockaded by Russia out of the Black Sea ports. Um, and so that's happening in the Middle East where there are many concerns, which I've addressed elsewhere, about kind of Arab Spring 2.0 and that sort of thing. In developed countries, uh, we don't get riots or civil unrest in the same kind of way. We get more organized expressions of popular discontent. Um, and that means strikes, of course, uh, and protests. Governments, having responded with so much fiscal largesse during yeah. the pandemic, are really going to be expected to step up. And what I think we're already seeing is fuel prices and subsidies for fuel prices are going to come first. Food is a bit more difficult in, in developed countries. Right. but. Um, winter heating, winter fuel allowances and those kinds of subsidies um, in the UK and Europe, I, I think are uh, just a question of, of when and not if. Tina, we only have about a minute left, but as we talk about the economic pain so many countries are feeling, are we going to start seeing a, a dissolution of the resolve of the allies to continue to support Ukraine, inflict economic pain on Russia when it's inflicting so much economic pain on their own domestic populations in return? Are we reaching that breaking point? We're not there yet, but at the G7 meetings, um, the measures that are being contemplated, uh, gas rationing in Germany, for example, um, the question of whether Russia just flat out you know, cuts gas supplies to Europe as punishment in what um, a tactic called coercive diplomacy, uh, it's very real. It'll be winter before we see push come to shove on this, but that's why getting the gas storage facilities in Europe filled uh, is crucial. They have to fight this. They can't give in to Russia. I think leaders understand this. Can they communicate to, to citizens the need to make sacrifices is a bigger question because politicians don't like to, to take, they like to give. Tina Fordham, thank you so much. Greatly appreciate it with Fordham Global Foresight. Nobody ever says, make it complicated. That is why Nationwide makes simplicity a priority by providing financial professionals with straightforward, client-ready resources. From clear strategies to help clients meet retirement savings and income needs to ways to cover rising health care costs and more, Nationwide simplifies planning so more time can be spent helping clients. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. 
The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It's packed with benefits to help unlock more value from your business purchases. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. This is an immense joy right now. Shahab Jalanus is global head of FX strategy at Credit Suisse and joins us this morning. And I want to go to the magnitude of your calls. I want to go weak yen, well out past 140. And Swiss franc, we've been watching the last 20 minutes to see if we go through parity. Strong euro Swissy coming down nicely under parity. And you say goes further. Why do we get these magnitude of moves in foreign exchange? Well, we're seeing the end of the former system of central banks using balance sheets to essentially manipulate where FX rates trade. And as that system frees up uh, or comes under pressure, you're seeing FX rates react to that. In Switzerland, they're much further ahead than where Japan is right now in making that transition. Japan is trying to stay, stay the course as long as possible. So that's what we're seeing reflected in FX. So are you calling for a Bretton Woods moment? I mean, is it a big enough shift coming off of balance sheet? dynamics that it's Allah after World War II and what Keynes and the others did at Mount Washington? It doesn't need to be as big as that to still have very significant effects for FX investors. Let's, let's put it that way. So, for example, in the Euro-Swiss cross, uh, it's very easy for us to imagine that cross going down to 97, even lower uh, in the weeks to come. What does it do to a McDonald's hamburger and a Bahnstroff just down from the Credit Suisse office asking for a friend? <laughs> Yeah, it's a good idea to, to think about those things. Uh, I guess they, they will get more expensive, um, but that's not something that, that is worrying the yeah. SMB at this point. So, uh, Lisa, that top ticks out at $20 for a number two value meal. Uh, I'm sure that there is some personal experience wrapped there in there. I can't figure it out, but I think I, that's my hunch. Shab, mm. uh, I wonder how much you're looking at peak yields, as we were just hearing from Mike Bell of J.P. Morgan, and how much does that mean peak dollar, right? How much are these two uh, measures really trading in tandem? Well, look, it's it's definitely been the case that rate differentials and uh, U.S.'s much higher yields have been helpful for the dollar. But to be honest, I think there's more to the dollar story than just yields. For example, uh, on the trade side, there's been very big shifts in, in uh, trade dynamics that really need to be recognized. So, for example, right now we have uh, the euro area with a, with a trade deficit. We have Japan moving rapidly in, this, in the same direction as well. So currencies like the euro and the yen that historically uh, were backed by trade surpluses, current account surpluses, the whole energy price shift and the terms of trade shift has really changed that dynamic materially. And meanwhile, on the U.S. side, you have record exports at this point. There's going to be nearly $200 billion of just agricultural exports in this fiscal year, uh, according to projections from, from uh, that side of the, the, the story. So 
when you put all that together, to me, there's more to the dollar strength story than just rate differentials at this point. This is a really important point. How does this translate into some of the big crosses, whether it's Euro parity or just in general, how strong the dollar can get? Well, I think the dollar right now looks strong compared to the last three to five years, that's for sure. But I think if you go back much further, uh, the dollar has been a lot stronger for a variety of reasons. And the key point I would make is it's not the same dollar as the last time euro dollar was at 105. You know, when you have euro now with trade deficits uh, as a problem, you basically need capital inflows into the euro area and on a net basis if you're going to have a current account deficit. And that's something that has been missing. The euro has been a capital exporter uh, for, for many, many years. So there's a new value proposition that the euro needs to offer uh, at this point in time, simply to, to avoid going down. Uh, and I think that's absent right now. Well, let's move from Europe to the island just next to it. We had UK consumer confidence data earlier today showing a record low, the lowest in 48 years of data, clearer concern around inflation, the cost of living, the possibility of a recession. How does that feed through to your view on sterling? We think sterling is is still going to go lower. Uh, we are looking for a test of 120 on cable again uh, and eventually a move through that level. Uh, the problem for sterling really, you still have that same trade story developing that I, I mentioned for the, for the euro area in Japan. Uh, it's not like years of a weak pound have created big trade surpluses or very competitive UK exports. That just hasn't happened for a variety of reasons. Uh, and so you have a currency that doesn't really have any reason to go up right now. Um, even when you think about the Bank of England, uh, the market is pricing in 50 basis point hikes consecutively for a few meetings uh, ahead of us. And yet the Bank of England is constantly pushing back against that narrative and makes it very difficult to realize uh, what's already priced in. So when you put that, those factors on the table, sterling is still going to go lower. Uh, Shaw, I got to get more questions. Um, you got to go, but you know, Please come back soonest as you can. I got these are some abrupt calls here from Shab Jalan. It's a different landscape out there for all of us investors, including Jerome Powell, uh, with the kind of moves that Credit Suisse is talking about. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening. Join us live weekdays from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television each day from 6 to 9 a.m. for insight. From the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. And subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Terminal. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. You can earn four times points on your top two eligible spending categories every month, like transit, U.S. restaurants, and gas stations. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Four times points on up to $150,000 in purchases per year. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts.
From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.